You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 32. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to The Lively Show, guys. Thank you for being with me today. I just got back from Nashville this week after speaking at Amber Housley's AH Inspire Conference. It was so much fun being one of the keynote speakers and getting to do an intention-setting conversation and kind of activity with the group. It was a lot of fun, and I'm so inspired by the attendees and the speakers that I got to meet throughout this week. In addition, Life with Intention Online is still open. It's a six-week online course. Enrollment is open until September 24th, and the class will begin on September 29th. Currently, we have 150 students, actually more than 150 students so far, new and alumni in the course. It's helping people become more peaceful, present, and powerful in every area of their life. This is really a transformation of how we approach things, and it's ultimately a system we can apply that really helps lay out how we can approach things in a more peaceful, present, and powerful way. In this episode, we're talking with Kate Ahrens of witanddelight.com. Kate is a wonderfully talented designer, and you may know her from her lifestyle blog or Instagram account or Pinterest boards because she's very large in all of those spaces, but she also has a new line out for Target, which is incredible. I can't wait to go to Target and pick up several of the pieces myself and have them in my home. In this episode, we're going to be talking with Kate about how she and her husband have approached their new home purchase and how she's going to be designing that home in a new way. Angie's going to talk about her thoughts on minimalism and how she believes it's been warped in the design world from how it was originally intended. And we'll be talking about the challenges Kate faced when working within the constraints of the launch for Target, which is fascinating for anyone that is a designer or just wants to kind of learn what it would be like to work with some huge company like Target, whether you're a shopper at Target or a designer, I think it's a really interesting conversation. And we'll be talking about Kate's struggles with mental health issues and the message she wishes that social media would promote more about those challenging concepts. And Kate at the end is going to share what I believe is the most brilliant and easy to understand take on being authentic. I've used her new definition of authenticity in my own life throughout the last few weeks since we've recorded this episode. And it's really become this touchstone for me to help me guide my actions when I'm wondering, is this the authentic thing for me to do? Let's go to the show. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Kate. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. I think you're hailing from your car right now, correct? <laughs> I am. I am. It's a cozy little mini Cooper. So oh, I'm really? comfortable. Yeah. What yeah. color? Uh, it's a, the cream color. It's pretty cute. Oh, that sounds beautiful. Okay. So while you're sitting in your mini Cooper, do you mind telling us a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are? Absolutely. It's, um, yeah, it's, it, it's all started at design school. Um, I went to Iowa State University, Midwestern girl, um, actually from the Chicago area as well, and um, got my design degree and moved up to Minneapolis to work in a brand design studio. Um, and it was a really great first job out of school. But around 2008, when the recession began to happen, uh, I was lucky enough to have a job. But the workload at, at the design firm had slowed down. So I'd had, I had sort of this time, you know, at work to figure out, okay, like, what am I going to do to fill my time? And blogs were becoming popular. Um, you know, I was really following, loved, you know, Design Sponge and I loved, uh, Oh Joy. And I thought, you know, maybe this would be a really great, great way for me to spend some of this downtime to, to kind of like dive a little bit more into 
products that I really liked kind of like evolve my sense of style and all the while kind of look at, you know, if I built a following, maybe this could also help my freelance design business. So that was sort of the thought. I named the blog Wit and Delight because those were the two, the two things that I really, you know, qualities in, in, in people and in things that I would gravitate towards. There's always sort of this, a little bit of a sharpness and, and a sense of humor to things. And they're, they're thoughtful and, and smart, but they're also beautiful and delightful and they, they sort of make you smile. That was sort of like all I really knew about what I liked. And kind of underneath that umbrella, I kind of like populated things. And I was 24 when I started, I'm 30 now. And it's really just evolved with me. Kind of went from you know a, a someone who who was just starting out as a as a designer to a person who you know I think has gone through you know a lot of ups and downs in my my personal life, and it's really you know, really taken the time to sort of educate myself and who I am. Kind of beginning to sort of see the evolution of of wit and delight as I evolve. What's what's really nice about it too is it it really a good um, business uh, opportunity as well. I, I look at it. At the blog is sort of a marketing arm of, of, a, of a design studio. So I still do a lot of um, creative direction, um, brand consulting, um, a lot of strategy work, um, and some design work still. So it, it's turned out to be a great, a great ride so far. So we'll see. We'll see what's next. <laughs> and you recently just bought a new house. Yes. Yes, we did. Homeownership. It's actually been exactly one week. Um, since we closed and we've already done so much, but, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, things like, you know, I don't know where my, my water, like, how do I turn on the water in my house? I like had to like search high and low to find this reader and it's, it'll be a fun, it'll be a fun project, you know, figure out how to like fix things and, and decorate too. Was it a tough process finding the house that you wanted since you're such a design oriented person? It was, it was a very interesting, uh, interesting interaction between my husband and I, because even before, before we really started looking, we had these very long conversations about, okay, well, like where, you know, where are my expectations going to be to make this process not absolutely terrible? You have to really manage your expectations and sort of say, you spend so much time on Pinterest, you know, and, and as an art director, you also know, like that isn't real. Those things are very staged. And even knowing that you still want it. <laughs> yeah, I know. We still, we had this long talk and he's like, I don't want to live in Witten Delight's house. I was like, but I really loved it, you know, love to you know, design these things. So we ended up kind of meeting in the middle that we, we sat down and sort of said, okay, these are the three things that we can't live without. What were those three things? Yeah, the three things was, you know, location. We really wanted to be in a neighborhood that we really loved being in and that we felt safe in. And then the second one was the exterior of the house. We really realized that we didn't want a brand new home. It just wasn't, we, we weren't as drawn to, to the newer homes. There's a lot of great homes with old, like old character and charm. So we, we agreed that we really wanted something that had like cool curb appeal. And then that was something that we, you know, it was budget we were both really decided that we wanted to buy a house with one income in mind and, and use the other one as, as a vehicle for saving. So we weren't, you know, biting off more than we can chew. So once we realized that we really did have the same goals, it became so much easier to look for a house. And we ended up going with, with a house that Joe had found. It was his, his house that he found and he showed it to me and it has all of this potential. It's, it's definitely a fixer upper, but it has the, you know, the things that of an old, like the charm of an old home that you don't see built anymore. It has like an arched, arched doorways and these cool beams and cool old windows that are, that are like steel framed and pull out. And we realized that that charm was, 
was definitely worth, I think, the dated bathroom and the kind of funny kitchen that we're going to end up redoing. It reminds me a lot of my own journey finding the house we're now renting here in Austin from Chicago since we just moved a month ago ourselves. So it was a similar journey trying to manage my expectations and Mr. Lively's desires at the same time. Yeah, it's it's the, the constant sort of little drama that always plays out. It's so much fun, though, to I don't know. I always think that where we end up is so much better than like my my original sort of like, oh, I want it this way or his point of view. So I was browsing your site and could not get enough of this post you wrote about minimalism. I'd like to share a few of the paragraphs to kick off a conversation. To call minimalism an aesthetic threatens to leave us with nothing but a thin shell of veneer. If you only have style in mind, you'll bleach away the true essence of what minimalism reveals, purity and purpose. We may strive for reduction and restraint in our lives to deal with the chaos and uncertainty. Maybe it's easier to sell a minimalist facade than it is to need fewer things emotionally. Even when we achieve it, nothing is ever perfectly manicured for long. There's always something new to process. Well said, first of all. Thank you. What is your perspective on minimalism and how has it evolved? You know, my perspective on minimalism really does come from design school. And you, you look at what minimalism, where it comes from, especially in the Japanese and Scandinavian culture, and reduction comes from the need to make something as useful and as simple as possible. You know, there's Dieter Rams, you know, said as little design as possible. That's, that's his hallmark for if you've sort of hit, you know, a a product that is completely pure. And, you know, I see a lot of, you know, of minimalism showing up as an aesthetic now. And it, it looks like minimalism is just much harder to actually do when you go through the process of reduction and it's a lot more rewarding to do it that way because it really asks you to think about okay why do i need this what purpose does it serve you know and how is it going to affect you know and and serve me in, in in the long term so it's less about sort of white walls and sort of having a you know a minimalist wardrobe it's a lot more about looking at what you need and figuring out how the things in your life can fit the way that you need to live, not how you even want to live. It's it's really balancing sort of what you need and what you want. And so I, I just began seeing minimalism coming up as so much as sort of this quick fix or sort of thing that you sort of, you know, said, this is this is what I am. It was lacking kind of the process. And, you know, the process is the most important part with getting to that point. And then when I when I was talking about sort of the chaos control element with it, you know, I think sometimes when you don't listen to what your body needs and what your mind needs and what you need in your life, you begin to sort of, uh, I think, reduce the wrong things. If you don't have like a good sort of sense of who you are and what you're doing, control can be a way to try to find that. And I, I have been there and, and, and done that. I've, I've had, you know, parts of my life where it was like I would only eat salad, you know, and, and felt that control in that way would, would make me happier or may, make me feel a little bit more comfortable in my own skin. And really what I needed to do was think about, okay, how am I feeling today? What can I do to make sure that I feel good? Am, am I drinking enough water? Am I getting enough rest? It's less about controlling everything and making everything look perfect and a little bit more about looking inward. So I guess I saw this tr- this trend of minimalism beginning to kind of reflect this need to create this very austere, very controlled lifestyle when people weren't really going through the messy process of getting to that point. And maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But for me, being able to be healthy enough to go and kind of slow down and say, okay, minimalism really means 
slowing down and looking at myself internally. And then the result of that is real minimalism. It doesn't mean that you're minimalist if you have white walls. It's just a look. <laughs> it's just a look. And I think I think true minimalism is to, is to need fewer things emotionally and to need fewer things in your life to feel full. Well said. I think that's so powerful. And it relates a lot to the work that I do with Life with Intention Online, actually. Mm-hmm. So I'm really loving everything you're sharing because it's about removing things that aren't value driven in our right. lives. And we need to know what our values are first. And it's not so much about just eliminating outcomes and the stuff in our lives alone. It's about removing things based on the values. And that can be our physical possessions, like you've mentioned, but it also is our relationships, our personal habits and our career. I love that so much. So here's a question for you then. You mentioned the salad thing. I too spent nine years kind of controlling my eating. What were you controlling because you couldn't control something else? Why was that the focus? Oh man. I mean, it, it it's something that I deal with constantly. That kind of control bounces from one thing to the other. Sometimes it's eating, other times it's exercise. It's like a transfer addiction. It is. And I've, I've learned that those things are kind of ingrained in you from things that have happened, you know, in your past. And I, I have found that I'm hardwired to be an anxious person. Really? So how did you come to that realization? Oh my gosh. I mean, therapy. It honestly was. I, I went through a you know period where I really became undone. I, I, I ended up my first marriage and in, in divorce. And I remember sitting in the couples counselor session with, with my ex-husband and the first session, the, the counselor's looking at me and he is like, you do not like yourself, do you? And I just started bawling. And it was just this sort of, I had a bad relationship with myself. I was sort of hardwired to be anxious. And what I was trying to control was, I think, really getting to know who I was and accepting the fact that I wasn't perfect. And perfection, in a lot of ways, becomes this really great tool for, it's like it's an, it's like an armor. You know, perfection is sort of saying, like, I don't want you to see the softer you know, more vulnerable parts of myself. And so I think that control really came from the fact that I didn't really know myself. And so the thought of anyone getting close to me was very scary. And so you just kind of control everything around. So fascinating you say this because I just had an episode with Christopher Carter, who I think you'd really like and enjoy that episode. It's really powerful. And he talks about the correlation between uncertainty or this desire or facade of certainty in perfectionism, that if we can do something perfect, we remove uncertainty in our lives. And it was transforming. It was a aha moment for me in a huge way because I too was paralyzingly perfectionistic in my growing up years. And at the same time, started my business when I was out of school. So I had tons of uncertainty in my entire career. So I had this like duality where I thought I was okay with certainty, but knew that I struggled with perfectionism. And when you draw that parallel that just changed my whole view on uncertainty and more importantly on what perfectionism really is. How do you feel about that? What you just said just was a very much an aha moment for me as well. And it reminds me of the thought process and creative process I have when I'm writing posts like the one on minimalism. I want to make sure that even though I'm making these very strong statements and they come from a lot of reflection and they come from a lot of time spent and, and some experience, that my certainty in them I need to sort of counterbalance that. I might think that that is the way that it is, but someone else is going to have another perspective. And who knows, when I'm 40, I could look at back what I wrote when I was 30 and sort of be like, you know, you, you didn't really know. So I try to remember that I, I like to wrap things up neatly and sort of say like, and this is how it is, stamp. You always have to remember that, that yeah, that it's that might be, you know, your point of view for right now, but uncertainty is is a part of life. It just is. And it's uncomfortable, but it's it's not going to go away. 
And values are subjective. Yes. They are something that we hold for a period but does not need to be held for the rest of our lives. So like you said, as you grow older, you just may choose to value something different mm-hmm. than you do right now. It doesn't mean that what you value now, well, maybe there are things, especially achievements and outcomes, valuing those definitely are fleeting. So that we can get older and learn. But the values we have that are even transcendent, the uppercase V values, I call them, we can just learn to value different things. I valued very different things when I lived in Chicago and moved there seven years ago than what I value now and while I'm living in Austin. And that doesn't mean I was wrong before or you were wrong before. It just means that's where we were in our lives before. Right. Totally. That's a really great way to look at it. That's also sort of like looking at where you've been and where you're going with a lot of respect, you know, other than sort of to look at yourself and be critical, which is another another perfectionist thing. What could I be better at? You just shared that that moment in therapy was really a huge hit for you where you realized you didn't like yourself. And then now you're married. Obviously, you've learned you went through that process of learning, I'm assuming to some degree Mm -hmm. to liking yourself. So what did you do before getting married so that you could be ready for that? But more importantly, do the work internally. What did you do? So I, after that session and and throughout the, the process of the divorce, I saw my therapist quite often. And I, I found someone who really served as sort of a an older sister slash mother slash friend who would tell you like it is person. You know, someone who I felt I could really trust and be totally transparent with. How'd you find her? It was actually through the recommendation of our couples counselor, which was great. And that came through a recommendation through my ex-husband's network. And I've been with her since 2011. And she talks to me about my business. Um, you know, she talks to me about everything. But what she really helped me do is recognize when I was using shaming techniques and recognize when I was being a perfectionist. And she helped me become self-aware. I learned how to, you know, not sort of like overcorrect my behavior, but just recognize what was happening and be curious when I was struggling and sort of say, oh, why can't I sleep tonight? Or why did that person make me so angry? And really helped me process them. Through the past four years, I've just become to really get to know myself. And that really mean voice, that shaming voice in my head has turned into someone who is a little bit, it's not that I'm sort of like pat myself on the back. It's more just, it's just kind. Sort of as like your internal mother sort of saying, you really need to go to sleep because you're going to be in a terrible mood tomorrow if you don't. You know, that that is such self-care and self-love. So over time, you know, I learned, I really learned how to do that. And the more I did it, the more I realized how rewarding it was to treat myself in that way. And that's really resulted in a much healthier relationship with myself. And when I met my husband, it was actually a very, very quick courtship. And we were married nine months after we met. Our first date, we sat down and he had gone through some similar struggles in his life. He had gone through a point where he realized that he you know, had crippling anxiety and he had gone through his own sort of uh, revelation with therapists. And he was so good at expressing and communicating his feelings. I had found that I had met someone that I could be that safe with. And I think that, you know, for someone like me to have a match like that, we keep each other healthy. He keeps me healthy. And I, I found that to be absolutely perfect for just for the type of person that I am. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been really nice. And I, I feel very, very blessed to have found someone who could do that for me. But I think back to, you know, when I met when I met my first husband and I was a very different person. I was very controlling and I thought I had everything figured out and no one else knew better than me. And now it's, you know, it's, it's very much 
okay, what do we need? This is what I need and I need from you or I need to be a better a better wife and a better friend. Actually, to that point about controlling, it's interesting. I had this realization when I was in Chicago. I live near Lake Michigan and I loved walking by it because for me it represented, the sun reflecting on the lake represented this idea of our intuition, our innermost being, our whatever you want to call it, God, whatever, the part of us is not our ego, that negative voice in our head, but the other part of us that is connected and peaceful and whole all the time. And so I saw this idea of the universe or whatever Mm -hmm. that collective goodness is as the sun and the water, some water reflected that light and other water reflected the shadows in the water. And I just always connected with that image. So when I would go on the water, my whole idea was I don't have to do anything to be shiny, like the sparkle water. I just need to reflect the light. I don't have to do anything. I just need to be there and the light will be reflected off of me. So that was this huge thing. But then one day I walked by the lake and I saw this man. And at first I saw him right in front of the horizon line where all the sparkle water is happening. And I'm just like geeking out on how beautiful it is and just getting that connection. And then I see him and I'm like, oh my gosh, look at this. And I just tell the story of he's doing Tai Chi and he's like connecting with this himself. And as I got closer, I realized he was actually boxing in the air. So it basically looked like he was punching the air. And it was very different experience than Tai Chi, which which I initially thought. So as I looked at it, I made this connection to the idea of controlling because I too early in my marriage, especially I would say the first six months, especially I had this tendency to want Mr. Lively, my husband, to approach life in a similar way. He's more laid back about things. You might wonder, my listeners might wonder, is he as like curious about self-development and all this stuff? No, he's not. Not naturally. It's not his natural interest. So I was, you know, kind of wanting him to jump out of bed and run with me in the mornings. I wanted to basically control his behavior. And I realized as I looked at that man punching at the water because it looked like from my vantage point that he was punching the sparkles. It was what I realized was who I was whenever I was trying to have my husband do what I wanted him to do, what I thought he should do for a good life. I really was just punching at the water. I wasn't sparkling. I was not going to make, and that man is never going to make that water sparkle by punching at the air. And I realized how stupid it is. And when we do that, we're really separating ourselves. Literally, instead of being in the water and shining with the other parts that are shining and encouraging our partner to shine with us, when we try to control, we're literally taking ourselves away outside of the water, separating ourselves and air punching, which is a completely useless tool. It's so interesting how what you need or what's happening inside of you comes in almost the most unintuitive, non-direct way possible because you really feel like by connecting with your husband in that way that would be better. And, and, and what was really happening is that you need to sort of like look at yourself and sort of say, okay, well, it's actually something that I can kind of fix with a little bit reflecting to myself. And I, I think about that all the time. When I get controlling with other people, I'm like, oh, this is so much more about me than it is about you at all. And that's how my therapist really, really helped. She would sort of say like, you know, why do you want to sort of control what other people are doing? And I was like, well, I want to share this with them. And she's like, you have to realize it's not their calling. Yeah. And it's not the method that's going to actually bring it about. Yes. Because control is force and people are yeah. repelled by force. They're not drawn to it. But when you share by just sparkling, right, by just being in the water sparkling, eventually people, when you model the behavior, may become curious or they may not. But either way, at least you're sparkling instead of punching the air. Absolutely. I love that. Let's go back a little bit to minimalism, because I think as a designer, obviously, you're 
in that world. So when you think about minimalism in this process oriented way versus the aesthetic, Mm -hmm. do you ever feel like having a clean space is kind of presenting the wrong image? Or do you ever feel like having more stuff to show that minimalism isn't just about not having stuff? I'm just curious in what your perspective is on your aesthetic and minimalism for what it means to you. Yeah, you know, I've, I actually have a little blog post that's start, started on this today, actually, that's about what is good taste and why does it matter? If it gives you delight, does it matter if it's good or bad? I kind of look at look at my space and I think, okay, well, I'm having this sort of shift in a relationship with my things. I, I like things that are a little bit clean. I do like white walls, but I can't make those decisions based on the affirmation that this room looks good in the eyes of however many people. If it makes my husband and I happy and we feel like we're at home, that is all that matters. And I try to think about that sometimes when I see someone in just like a ridiculous outfit walking across the street. It was this morning driving driving to work and kind of my, my younger self would have sort of been like, what is she wearing? And this person was strutting down the street in her like kind of crazy, like hot pink, like feather outfit. And I thought, good for her. She looks like she's having the time of her life. She feels good about herself. Who's anyone to judge to judge what she's doing? She's not like flashing the world. And I think about my my house and my interiors look beautiful because I get joy out of creating a space like that. I have since I was a kid before there was the internet. I would redesign my room and I would literally take photos on a disposable camera and then go out to one hour photo and I would get pictures of my room. Like I, it's something that I've always loved to do. I didn't post them on Facebook. It was, it was the process of creating a home was important to me. It made me feel happy. I can totally relate to that. And actually, here's the question then. So everything you're saying, and we're both at the similar place with just getting to our new places, our new homes for the first time. All right. So, and we both have had a lot of home tours. I'm sure you've had a bunch. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we're both in a similar journey right now as we're designing these spaces. And I'm wondering if you have in the back of your head that ego voice saying, is it going to be good enough for a tour? And then the other side of you learning yeah. to say, does it matter if it's good enough for a tour? I think we're in the same exact place right now. Yep. Yep. And there are certain things, you know, when, I, when, when Joe speaks up and he's like, listen, I really, really, really don't like that. And it's something that's trendy right now. I mean, there was this chair that I wanted to buy that had these brass legs. And he, he was just like, we do not need to have that. It was supposed to replace this leather chair that we already have that is perfectly fine. And, you know, I, I really try to listen to him and sort of say, this is okay. You know, it might not be my favorite thing in the world, but in the grand scheme of all the things that we need to do, just being okay with things that are there and not trying to like overthink certain things. With the last apartment that we had, I went through a really difficult time where I was like, this place doesn't look good enough. It doesn't look good enough. There's this tour coming up. And I got it to the point where I felt really happy with it. And then I realized that like all of that worrying was totally unnecessary, that I should just sort of let things go. And even when I was really stressing about what decisions to make, I still ended up going with something that wasn't super trendy or didn't look exactly like it came out of a, a Pinterest page. And just realizing that I, I always had to be true to my own style. It's, it's easy to be sort of influenced or sort of put up another picture of someone's house and sort of say, like, does it add up? But you're never going to, I think, feel happy with your space if you're comparing. I think you should feel happy with creating something that came from within and try not to compare too much. 
But here's the thing though. So for me, I can say that and I have a class and I have a podcast and I have a blog, but I can design my blog however I want. So that branding stuff's all in my control to make it look however I want. But here's the thing mm-hmm. for you, you have a home collection at Target. <laughs> so people yes, are going yeah. to be measuring what your taste is by what you do personally. I feel like it's even more complicated and tangled in a way for you. Yeah. You know, I think this, this again goes back to things, things from design school. You, you learn how to have a really thick skin when it comes to sort of like your, your craft. The, what I like to think about is if one execution doesn't hit it out of the park or if one idea, you know, someone copies it, you always have more opportunities to make something. Granted, target collections don't come along, you know, every, every only once like once in a lifetime, but, and there are things about that project that I'm, super happy with. And there are things about the project that are limiting and I'm a little, you know, a little unhappy with. That's the nature of sort of looking at your own work and saying, I've never been 100% happy with what I've done. So putting on that thick skin and realizing that it's never going to be, you know, for everyone, you're always going to have new ideas and and you're always going to be evolving. I think people who, who come up with great content do it because they can keep doing it. So that's what I try to remember. And there are times where I'll like be presenting design work or like someone will comment on my Instagram and be like, your room sucks or you look fat in that outfit or something like that. And you're sort of just like, okay, thanks for telling me. Like, what did you get out of that? You know, and I, it's, it's just really sort of being like letting it kind of roll off your back. And there will be some people who will be disappointed in the target line for sure. I, I like to joke that there are, you know, my face is going to be next to like toilet paper. Like it's like, it's a wonderful, beautiful, exciting thing. It's, you know, in a, in a store that sells toilet paper too. So it's like, I can't take it too seriously. That's not to say that, you know, in the design process, I was, I was really involved and we had made lots of edits to certain things. And Target was awesome at really understanding my process and, and staying true to my brand. And I had to reiterate, you know, a number of times that, you know, it needed to be a little bit more elevated. There are other places where I, you know, it's, it's all around party themed. I felt that, you know, I don't really throw, throw parties with plastic. So most of the stuff is stoneware, you know, and there are a couple of paper products in there, but they, they approached my line differently. And it's a little bit more permanent than some of the more sort of uh, the things that were disposable, uh, just because my brand wouldn't behave in that way. So yeah, it's, it's, I think being a creator and a designer is also kind of knowing what the limitations of the of the brief is and target its price point and feasibility for you know how it's going to be displayed and also the need to have a visual shelf impact and a lot of people don't think about that when they look at the line they sort of think of like you know whether they like it or not but as a designer you think about all of those things you know one example would be when we were designing product. I I tend to like things that have a little bit more subtlety and a lot of texture and, you know, things that, you know, might be a little bit more monochromatic. Um, But with my design experience before, I knew that that wouldn't, number one, we wouldn't be able to produce things at that quality for what we're looking at with Target. And two, they wouldn't read on shelf. Um, And so you look at different ways to achieve something that looks, that looks and feels like your brand based on that context. Let's rewind. So how did Target happen? Did you just happen to one day get the email of a lifetime saying, I'm Target and I want to work with you? Yeah, I, I, I did. I got an email from from Target, from the curation. They have a curation department in New York. And I emailed my husband because he, he worked there for about a year and a half. And he's like, yeah, I think that's it's designer partnerships. 
I, I was I like thought that they may want to design something with me, but I was I didn't want to jump to that conclusion. But I sat down and talked with them, and they presented this project, and I you know I have joy to thank for it. It was you know joy joy who was working with them on ways to collaborate on Pinterest and. They wanted to work with a couple pinners and Joy. I actually Joy when I first started out, I hired her for her Oh Joy RX services, um, prescription services, where she would sort of like help young designers sort of say, "This is what you can you should keep doing to kind of continue into your freelance career." And um, so we met through that, and she had recommended me and a you know a number of other pinners that she liked, and Target ended up you know, selecting me and Jan. And I recently had lunch, uh, I guess it's not recent. I recently had dinner with her in LA, um, for the first time. And it was really fun to just to, just to meet her and say, thank you for being a fan and presenting this opportunity for me. So that was a pretty cool email to get. How has it changed you since you've gotten that partnership personally? And how has it changed your career? It's changed me personally. Um, I, I've definitely had to, I think, think about having a better relationship with my my work. For many years, I really looked at blogging as my sort of like fun little hobby that I had. And I really, re- really put my heels down and sort of said, I'm not going to be a full-time blogger. I want to do this design work and I want to do this thing. And went and delay. I, I sort of like was afraid to, to show people that I was putting a lot of time into it and just sort of trying to be very like, oh, nonchalant about it. And things were going in the direction where it was like, okay, it's time to really like think about Wit and Delight and what does it mean to you? And when this target thing comes out, what does Wit and Delight look like? Because it's going to be in front of people who will be seeing it for the first time. And that's when I realized that Wit and Delight wasn't about just pretty things. Wit and Delight was going to be about designing a, a, you know, a better life. And that meant to be a good human and work on reading a little bit more and being a good conversationalist at dinner and being a good wife and a good daughter and a good mother eventually. And so I, I really looked at that and just thought, okay, if, if this target thing is coming, why don't I really sort of make this evolution so I feel so I feel happy and, and ready to sort of show the world what, what I've built. And so I think the shift of knowing that eyes were going to be on me really made you know, really made it important for me to make a decision about the point of view Wit and Delight was going to have. And personally, you know, it's definitely just it's highlighted the fact that I think I'm a little more introverted than I had realized there have been, you know, parts where I've sort of been like, okay, I really just wish I could kind of hide behind the computer. And do I feel like I'm a little scared to have something in a like in a national chain and store. But, you know, I've sort of realized that if I'm a little introverted, I can I can kind of deal with being a little bit more in the spotlight by by just recognizing it, you know, and, and owning it and, you know, just meeting people with a smile and, and taking the time that I need to recharge when I need to recharge. When you get this, I'm sure your ego has its own reaction and it has its own expectations to what's going to happen next. Has what's happened? Yeah. What's the intersection between the expectations you are more likely your ego had for it and what's actually happened? You know, I think my my ego is could be so, so mean sometimes. I think I looked at it and I thought I just sort of my expectations were pretty low. Really? I would think they would be sky high. You know, I, I just get afraid that by doing that, I'll, I'll disappoint myself or I will psych myself out. I tend to do my best work when I let everything else go away and I just think about, OK, just doing what I need to do. I've gotten good at kind of putting the blinders on. What's bad about those blinders is sometimes I'm a little disconnected to what's actually happening. 
you know, it's like, oh, wait, people are reading, you know, you sort of like, I don't know if it's like low self-esteem or something that I sort of am like, it's always a happy surprise. I think it's, it could be a defense thing too. Like, I just want to make sure I'm okay if, you know, if, if people are like, if it goes away. Yeah. I mean, and, and it, the thing is, is that everything at some point goes away and it's just making sure that like in this moment right now, I'm, I'm enjoying it and I'm happy with it. I think that there are always other things that, that come next and that can be really cool. I have a question for you then on that topic. I just had a conversation with a friend, Becky, of Chipper Things, and she landed this book deal and her friend asked her what her anchor was going to be while she was going through that process to tie her back to reality. What did you use as your anchor with the Target collection? My husband, he was a person who I would sort of freak out at and sort of say like, this, all of this is happening and you're getting like flown out to, to LA and you're on these photo shoots and your face is going to be on stuff. And, you know, I just sort of look at him and I'd look at our house and I'll be like, this is my safe place and this will always be here. And as long as I'm really happy here, everything else can like come and go and it's not going to sweep me away. Because if, if you let it, there is such a thing as a hangover when it's all done. You know, when it gets quiet after after the big party, I used to hate that. And so just remembering that being happy with what you have and like everything else is extra um, is something that we would talk about quite a bit. It's enjoying without grasping it. Yes, yes. Without grasping it or without holding on to it and feeling that you need it. That's a, a definitely a thing with social media. I think all the time, like, what if my Pinterest page got hacked and it got deleted? Or what if my Instagram account went away and all like 82,000 people went away? I think you have to be okay with the fact if it did go away, that you would be okay because you... It always could. It's a sandcastle. It it's a sandcastle. And if your whole self-worth is wrapped up in that, I mean, that's dangerous. That's so dangerous. It's any outcome. Yes. It's not just at Pinterest or social media. It's anything in our lives. And really understanding too, and I think maybe going through a part where you feel like your whole world has collapsed before... Once you kind of go through that, I think that you look at situations a little differently and you're kind of like not doing that again, you know, and you like you can be a little more fearless because you've you have rebuilt your life, but you also are so much smarter. You're like, OK, I see you. I see a landmine there and you can like dance around it. And sometimes you trip and there are other times where my ego takes over, you know, and I always have a bad feeling if I'm, you know, if I'm feeling cocky about something or if someone says something, you know, mean about me and I'm sort of like, how dare they? You just got to be like water, you know, like I have my, my water analogy. I can't even remember who said this, but to, to be like water is to react only when you need to react like a pebble. It ripples and then it goes steady. I always try to remember that when I get worked up or my ego kind of starts beating its chest. Like I feel the need to feel a little bit bigger because I'm feeling small. The anchor is so important, especially in anyone's career where they sort of see this evolution or you sort of a good thing happens that will evolve or at some point come to completion. Absolutely. You mentioned before the show that mental health issues are really important to you and that you don't think that social media is really addressing them properly. Yeah, I think it's it it's become a little bit, you know, anxiety and um, and depression and really, really any kind of mental affliction. It really has the stigma to it. Like, don't talk about it. And I think we, we, we don't talk about it because everyone in some way, shape or form has dealt with melancholy or has dealt with mood swings. And those are things that you kind of, I think, want to deal with in private. And that makes complete sense. But to know that you're not alone in feeling things that can be, if you're genetically prone to it, crippling is very scary. It's like not treating a cancer. 
And education is the most important thing that we can do to help lift the stigma of living with a mental disorder because when people have those things, it's not a choice, you know, it's not like you sort of, you know, went out and, and behaved recklessly and you, you know, came home with depression. It happens for a number of reasons and it's not a light switch that you can turn on or off. And it's not something that's wrong with you. No, it's not. It, it, it's, it's, it's who you are. When you have it, it's managing it throughout a lifetime. It's not, you know, you're not like going to be healed one day. I think that's why the, the dialogue and the awareness of it is really important in keeping people healthy and keeping people from getting to a place where they feel like they need to end their lives because it, the burden is just too heavy. I've been at that point. And it's very scary. It's very scary when you're there. It's very scary for the people that love you. And I've had so much shame in my own my own disorders, my own anxiety, my own ADHD, very severe ADD, and didn't know it. And had to deal with internally not beating myself up because I wasn't, I didn't have the shiny resume anymore. You know, I, I sort of like saw myself as less, as less of a human. And that was so wrong. And I kept thinking about, you know, why am I, where, where is this coming from? Where is this, where is this self-doubt coming from? And I, I, I felt like I couldn't share it. And so I think by speaking up about my own experience, I really hope it helps other people who may feel shame about where they are in their lives, that they're, there's nothing wrong with them. You're just a really unique and special person and your anxiety and depression or ADD or whatever you have is probably linked to some of the best attributes in yourself. You know, I think my creativity comes from the fact that I have ADHD. I think I can write the way that I write because I feel so much because I am sensitive. And sometimes I hate those things so much. And then I try to remember that that's also why I've been given these gifts that have been, they bring me a lot of joy that shift in thinking has helped. But something that you see what happens with Robin Williams and people are talking about it or they're calling it selfish. And it's hard to uh, see so many people not understand such a wide, widely spread, you know, thing that people deal with. Someone you know has, has dealt with it and suffered silently. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you for, for offering a platform where I feel, you know, safe, safe to share it. And I actually think that this is a topic we've also covered with Erin Gates. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. She's a designer. I do. Yeah. Yep. She talked mm-hmm. about optimi- We talked about optimizing her perfectionism in an earlier episode where she talked about how she said the same thing as you did. It had crippling negative side effects at times in her life. But at the same time, it is the thing that has driven her career to the heights that it has at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And she said, it's not about removing it. It's about finding the elements of it that cripple you and managing those, but not letting it burn out on the other side. Yep. Yep. It's such a delicate balance. Obviously, I think we've kind of already answered this question about what doubts or resistance you've had to face in your life. Yeah, um, I think I think we've kind of covered that question. Totally. It's it's all you know, it's all internal. It's I, I have been my own worst, my own worst enemy. That's definitely been me. What would you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey? I would tell them to look inside themselves and let the most authentic part of you out. That's, I think, the most rewarding part of a journey like this. It's also the best way to create your best content, I think, because no one can be you 
and no one can be you as well as you can as you can be. There are a lot of a lot of ways. It looks like sort of a shortcut to sort of look at what someone else has done and sort of sort of say, okay, well, they they went A B C, so let me try A B C. And I've done that before as well, and I always found that when I was a little scared and when I put myself out there a little bit more, that was always when the best results came. That's what I try to remember when I feel like I don't know which way to turn next and or which project to tackle. I think about things that call to my strengths and and that's where I go. So here's one question about that. Since you're so well-spoken, I really want to ask you, because a lot of people touch an authenticity concept, but I think that sometimes it is such a big word. People don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. So do you have any suggestions? I think authenticity is really when you don't need the affirmation of anyone else to feel very good about what you have to say or what your point of view is. Whoa, I gotta stop there. Well said. Let's repeat that, please. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You don't need the approval of anyone else for what you do, right? That's what it is? Yeah, for what you do. And there is sort of a double-edged sword when people talk about authenticity and the fact that that they're blogging about it. And I've read a couple blog posts recently from from a couple people who have sort of said, oh, authenticity is becoming a cheap way to gain readership. And it's it's really sad because (laughs) it's like, okay, doesn't that defeat the purpose of, you know, of like of self-discovery and finding a community that supports you to go out and say sort of like, oh, by being real, you're like, it's a publicity sort of this. It's sad, but really what you do have to do. And this is, you know, I think there are people who do that, who you can tell who's really doing this. And I think who is kind of looking at it as like, okay, I'm, I'm bearing all, you know, I'm being authentic. And it's really, it's really not that it is a way, you know, authenticity is, you know, really making sure that you don't need to have anyone else's approval for what you need to say, or what your point of view is on something. Putting it out there is really just about being vulnerable, I think. So I think that authenticity piece is really, it's it's different for every person. Authenticity usually feels a little scary. It usually feels like, okay, if it's important enough to be authentic, it's going to you know, you're going to feel something in your gut and sort of like, this is something that's very close and important to me and I care about it. If you don't, it might not, if someone doesn't really know what authentic kind of is in themselves, and that's very possible. I don't think at 24, I would have known what authentic is. I think I probably would have been like, yeah, I tell it like it is. But, you know, it was sort of like the tell it like it is was, would probably come out as like a controlling sign of kind of thing, you know? So I think it's, really just an evolution of really understanding who you are and being cool with it because it really doesn't matter if anyone else is cool with who you are if you are I mean you're you're winning you know you're you're so much further ahead than than you think you are if if you believe in what you're doing I think that's so powerful and I can relate to it on my own level because authenticity I love how you put it and I'm really going to try to incorporate that in my own life in a deeper way but I always try to think about the impact of what I have has on others when I do things and I got an email that was very kind. The person was very nice, but they were saying that they were concerned that I used the word hun in some emails that I had shared about a ask me anything post. And I wrote them to the people directly. So I put the, I included them in the post where I shared the answers. And she said it felt condes, it sounded condescending, which was her perspective on the word. And I'm someone who is more prone to go, oh my gosh, I don't want to step in on any toes. And I'll more likely to like censor myself in hopes not to upset someone than otherwise but when I heard that I had this part of me that was that that my husband high-fived me afterwards that kind of rejected even though I knew she came from a good place and she meant well 
that feedback to change that word because someone might read it and see it as condescending reverberated so deeply in knowing where I come from when I say that word. I grew up with my mother saying it to me my whole life. I say it to my husband. I say it to my friends. I say it online because I love the people I'm talking. And it was like this reaction and it was so deep into my core where it was like, no, I know people might not like that word, but guess what? Other people say the word totes and I can't say the word totes and be taken seriously in my own self. I can't say it because it doesn't feel authentic. But for me not to say is to not be authentic in the same way me saying totes would be inauthentic. Totally. I love, love that. Something that is a great, a great example of when, you know, when to stand up for yourself and when to sort of be like, that's your point of view. But this is, you know, this is me being the most myself I I possibly can be. I came with love. And if I come with love, I can't feel bad about that. Like that, that's a sign of love for me. It's not a sign of condescension. But I think it was easier to stand up for that because it came from a good place. I think sometimes it's harder to stand up for ourselves, especially when the ego is shading the actions that we're taking, because then there is that other element that we need to kind of face. But thank you for sharing that. That was really beautiful. And I think that's really going to shed a lot of light on authenticity for people, which can be kind of overwhelming. So thank you. This is a beautiful conversation, Kate. I'm so grateful. Thank you. I'm enjoying this so (laughs) much. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to sharing this and looking at some of the podcasts you were telling me about. It's like finding a gold mine. So I'm very excited about it. And they'll all be listed in the show notes for anyone else listening. Thank you, Kate, so much. Thank you. And there you have it. Thank you so much, Kate, for coming on and sharing so openly and honestly on so many topics. And thank you guys for listening. If you'd like to go send Kate a message to let her know how much her episode impacted you, please hop over to Twitter and send her a message at wit and delight. And again, if you're interested in Life with Intention Online and joining that course with us, please go over to lifewithintentiononline.com for more details. Thanks so much. And I'll see you guys next week. 